And now we're just going to, uh, we are just blessed this morning. Pastor Ed is on vacation this week. And uh, we have someone with us who is very well known to Springvale, but he's also very well known globally as well. And it is Pastor Charles Price. Now, you know, I had this long thing they gave me. It was about four pages long to introduce him. And I'm going, I can't do that in the limited time that we have. Apparently, he wrote it himself. But um, part, so I'm going to cut it short because we just have to. And, um, but he is an incredible speaker. He has spoken in over, well, what, over 100 countries and on every continent. Now, I got to tell you, that's far more places than I've spoken at. Not preached, but just spoken at. But anyway, and we're so glad to have him back with us this morning. And, you know, we just want you to, to make sure your hearts are open, wherever you may be, to listening to God's word. And, and, and let's just pray that the Holy Spirit would just really challenge you. Uh, Pastor Price, would you come up? And I'm just going to pray. And let's, let's give him a Springvale welcome. Father, we just pray this this morning as we get into your word. We're just so blessed to have Pastor Price with us. And we just ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would challenge us. We pray, God, that we've been praying for a while and we continue to pray that there would be a revival. We pray, God, that you would uh, bring us boldness and a fire and a passion in our hearts. So this morning, as your servant comes to share your word with us, we just uh, pray that you would work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark, very much. And uh, good morning. This is my third summer, I think, that I've come here when Pastor Ed has been on vacation. So I've yet to meet him. No, I have met him, but not in the. Ch- I never met him in this church. Uh, so he's the the phantom pastor. Uh, but it's, it's great to be here. I'm coming back two weeks as well today, I believe. So uh, I'm going to give you half a message this morning and uh, give you the rest next time. But I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 19. I'm going to read the first seven verses. And this is the story of Paul on his second missionary journey. And uh, it says in verse 1, third missionary journey, should I say, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. Interesting story. Paul's arriving in Ephesus for the first time. He meets 12 men, and they are described with these words. First, they are disciples. He says in verse 1 there that uh, he found some disciples. 
Secondly, they were believers. He asked them in verse 2 about uh, uh, when they believed. In verse 3, they were baptized. What baptism did you receive? He asked them. John's baptism, they replied. They'd been baptized. And in verse 4, they'd been repentant. He says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and they knew that. They'd been there. They'd experienced repentance. But Paul was troubled. If I met a group of folks who were repentant, believing, baptized disciples, I would believe the best about them. But Paul is a little troubled. Something isn't quite right here. Something is lacking here. Something is missing. And he asks them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they didn't even know what he was talking about. They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And yet this question was the most vital question of all, for it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer that is the presence of spiritual life in that person. Spiritual life isn't something God gives to us. Spiritual life is God himself coming to live his life by his Holy Spirit in us. Jesus met Nicodemus. You remember that story? He was a Pharisee, which meant he was one of the religious leaders of Israel. As such, he was schooled in the word of God. He was schooled in the law of God. He was meticulous. He was disciplined as the Pharisees were. And he came to Jesus one night and said, excuse me, there's something about you that is inexplicable. Unless God is with you, I can't understand you or explain you. And Jesus said, exactly right, Nicodemus. And I tell you the truth, that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That is, unless you are recipient of this life. He went on to say in John 3, verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You see, Nicodemus... This is not trying your best to be godly. This is your need to be the recipient of life, to be born again of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans 8 and verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. He can believe what he likes. He can be totally orthodox. But unless he has the Spirit of God living within him, says Paul, he does not belong to Christ. And in 1 John 3, in verse 24, John writes, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit that he gave to us. I think the book of Acts teaches us that there are four essential ingredients in true conversion. There is repentance towards God. And repentance, as you will know, means a change of mind. The Greek word that is translated in our English Bible is the word metanoia, which is a combination of two words, really. Meta is to change, noia, nous is the mind. I've sometimes asked people, 
Is repentance something you feel? Is repentance something you think? Or is repentance something you do? And I've asked a congregation of people, I want you to respond and put your hand up to this. I won't do it with you this morning because this is not the point of my message. Uh, just an illustration. But if I say, is repentance something you feel? Put your hand up and two or three put their hands up. Is repentance something you think? And maybe five or six put their hands up. Is repentance something you do? And the vast majority put their hands up. Repentance is not something you do. Repentance is something you think. It's a change of mind. A change of mind about God. A change of mind about yourself. A change of mind about your sin. That is an essential ingredient. Repentance. Faith. On the basis of my turning from what I am and what I do, I turn to who Christ is and what he does. And faith is basically the disposition that says, I can't, he can. When it comes to salvation, I can't, you can. Thank you, please save me. When it comes to living the Christian life, I can't, but you can. Thank you for doing that within me. Repentance and faith. And then there is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. When Peter preached the first sermon after Pentecost, in the new era of the church, which was born at Pentecost, the people said, what should we do? And Peter replied, Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what will then happen, because that is what will give you life. And then the fourth ingredient in the New Testament Conversion is baptism. Not that that does anything for you. It's a portrayal of what has gone inside. The person being baptized says, when Jesus Christ was crucified, I was crucified with him. My sin has been paid for. When Jesus Christ was buried, I was buried with him. So my sin has been taken into the grave. It is buried. But I'm not there now. I have risen to walk in newness of life. And uh, coming out of the water is a picture of what that means to now live in the resurrection life of Christ. So baptism was an essential part. It portrayed that to the world. Now, Paul, meeting these folks, knowing these four things that characterized his own preaching, repentance, faith, receiving the Spirit, and baptism, and says three of these things are right in these people. Three of these things are fully in place. But one is missing, and it is the most essential one that is missing. They have never received the Spirit of God into their lives. Now, he was wise. He didn't tell them that. You've got to let people answer that for themselves. You don't know about people's personal lives. But he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's when they said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now, we know how this situation came about, because in the previous chapter, if you read it in chapter 18, I'll read part of it at the end of that chapter. It says, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an educated man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. Now, if you look at the baptism of John the Baptist, he said about Jesus, you know, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and so on. So he certainly talked about the Holy Spirit. But Apollos had come with a gospel that stopped short of the Holy Spirit. It was the gospel that John the Baptist had preached. And uh, it says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue and he moved around the area. And then there's a little uh, 
parenthesis, which says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. They explained, Apollos, you're right 75% of the way, but there's something you don't have in your message, and that is the Holy Spirit, the life of God being imparted to people. That's what transforms people. And so he got it, but the damage had been done. And these 12 men uh, had become disciples. They had believed, they'd listened to Apollos' message, and they'd embraced the whole thing, but they had not encountered the missing piece. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And I want to ask you the question this morning. Is the Holy Spirit living in you? I'll give you some evidences in just a moment. Is the Holy Spirit living in you? Because it is his presence alone which makes you alive and creates in you new appetites and new desires and new resources and new strengths. Let me give you three evidences of the Holy Spirit living in your heart. I'm going to read three verses first from John 15 and 16, and I'll give you the first of these three evidences. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit in those chapters, and this is what he said in chapter 15, verse 26. He, that is the Holy Spirit, he will testify about me. He said in chapter 16, verse 14, he, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me. In chapter 16, verse 15, he says the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. So my first thing I'm going to give to you, the first evidence that the Holy Spirit has come to live within a person's life is there's a hunger to know Jesus Christ better. Because his job in us is to testify about Christ, said Jesus, to bring glory to Christ, to make the things of Christ known and real to us. And a mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person is that Jesus Christ steps out of history, he steps out of the Bible, and he becomes a living person within your heart. I was here last Sunday online, just to check you out. I loved that testimony. That young man whose name wasn't given to us, who had come to Christ, and that as he began to, uh, his heart began to awaken, as the Holy Spirit began to work within him. He had an appetite. He went on to different Bible programs, and he listened to messages, and he searched. He joined one of your groups. That's the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. There's an appetite. There's a hunger that he's placing within us. You know, we cannot stress enough that the Christian life is centered around Christ and that the Holy Spirit's work is centered around Christ. Therefore, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I promise you to one husband, to Christ. You're to be married to Christ is the metaphor that is used there. Not married to the Holy Spirit, by the way. Let me just throw in a caution at this point. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is not that we become preoccupied with the Holy Spirit. 
And I always get a little bit nervous when I meet people, and all they can talk about is the Holy Spirit. All they want is the Spirit, and everything they say is about the Holy Spirit. Everything is of him, and from him, and to him, and through him, and by him, and up him, and down him, and around him, and it's the Spirit, 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 Spirit. You say, something's wrong here. I'll tell you why. In the Trinity, which are the co-equal members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me, intriguing to me, that the Father has personal names and the Son has personal names, but the Holy Spirit doesn't. The Father is called Jehovah. I mean, these names in the Hebrew are translated more easily into the English. God, Lord, and so on. But Jehovah, translated Lord in most English Bibles. Elohim is another name for God, the Father. The Son has names. Jesus, which means he'll save his people from their sins. He'll be called Emmanuel. Joseph was told before he was born, which means God with us. But the Holy Spirit never has a name. He has titles. He's called the Counselor. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He's called the Holy Spirit. That's the most frequent description of him. But he's never given a name. That seems a rather strange omission, don't you think? If I arrived here this morning and Mark introduced me as the speaker, this morning we have the speaker. And the speaker is going to speak to us in just a moment. And the speaker has spoken here before. And the speaker speaks. And the speaker is the speaker. And the speaker is now going to come up and he's going to speak. You'd say, that's a bit of an odd introduction. <laughs> the speaker, the speaker, the speaker. I have a name. Why from Genesis to Revelation is the Holy Spirit never given a name? I want to suggest why. Because the Holy Spirit's task is supremely to make us conscious of Christ supremely to mold us into the image of Christ. And so the first evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is as a hunger to know Jesus Christ better. The Spirit bears witness to him. I heard a story some years ago now of a young man who went overseas to work for two years and uh, he had a girlfriend. And he was to leave her behind for two years. This is back in the day before there was any social media. And he promised her that he would write her a letter every day. And he did. Every day he sat down, he wrote her a letter. And every day the postman delivered it to her door. In those days, postman came to the door. There was such a day. And every day, she received a letter. And when the young man came home after two years, do you know what he discovered? He discovered his girlfriend had married the postman. Now said Jesus, I'm leaving you. So he's talking about in John 15, 16. 
I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Counselor. He gave him different names, the Spirit of Truth. He will testify about me. He will bring glory to me. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. Please don't marry the postman. It's me he's bearing witness to. He, and so one of the first evidences that the Spirit of God has come to live within you is you have an appetite for the Lord Jesus Christ you never had before. Before you were a bit embarrassed about him, maybe. I came to Christ in my early teens. I'd grown up in a Christian home, grown up in a church, and I went to a youth event in the city of Hereford in the west of England where I lived. And uh, that night, at the end of that meeting, I knew I was not a Christian and I knew I wanted to become one. The speaker at the front said, if there are those of you here tonight and you don't know Christ and you want to know Christ, I'm gonna invite you to come down to the front because we used to do that in those days. I want you to come down to the front of this building I remember the building was packed out. It was in the town hall, which was the largest public hall we had in, in that town. And uh, I'd gone with my brother, and every seat was taken at the stand at the back for the whole evening. I'm going to ask you, said, to come down here to the front. There are folks who will talk with you and pray with you and lead you to Christ. And people began to go down to the front, but I didn't. I stayed where I was. I was too embarrassed to do anything public. And by nature, an introvert. But that night I prayed. I don't remember the words, of course, but the effect of it was, Lord Jesus, I'm not a Christian. I want to become one. Would you please forgive me and come and live within me? I didn't feel anything. I went home that night. If somebody had said to me, did you become a Christian? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known. I would have known I wanted to, but I didn't know if anything had happened. The next morning I went to the, I went to the church in the village that I grew up in that I'd been to all my life. And that morning, for the first time, the service was interesting. I went back on Sunday night. We had a service on Sunday night as well. And for the first time, the preacher made sense. I thought to myself, this is remarkable. These people have changed overnight. <laughs> this used to be dull. That hour and a half in the morning was the longest hour and a half in the week. I couldn't believe it would finish that morning. When the preacher got up to preach on Sunday night, that was time to get out something and maybe read and pretend you're listening. Now, I couldn't get enough. And 24 hours after I became a Christian, I knew I'd become a Christian because I had an appetite I never had before. You can't decide that. You can't will that into being. That is a work of the Spirit of God. Although I didn't know all the language that I now know and, and, and the words to explain it, I knew that night when I went home, something has happened inside of me. There's an appetite I never had before. That's the first evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Second evidence is that the first is there's a hunger to know Christ better. The second is there's a hunger to be like Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about the battle that goes on in the heart of every Christian 
between what he calls the flesh, the natural self, the old nature, the corrupt, fallen nature, and the spirit who has come to live within us. And he says the acts of the flesh, the old nature, are obvious, he says. They're sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And we read that list, we say to ourselves, tut, 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 what a dirty list. But deep in your heart, we enjoy this list. If you're an editor of a tabloid newspaper, this is the verse you want on your desk. This is what people want to read about. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, etc. That's what sells newspapers. If you're going to be the scriptwriter of a soap opera, you want this text on your desk because this appeals to the old nature. And uh, we may talk about this in two weeks' time. I'm not sure. I may do because I could go in different directions. But that old nature you'll have till the day you die. That doesn't get weeded out. But alongside that old nature, he says, that is the natural me, but there lives alongside that old nature the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And by the way, that doesn't sell newspapers. That doesn't make people switch on to the next episode of some soap opera. But that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he says, and we can say that that fruit of the Holy Spirit is the character of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is the Spirit of God doing in you? He's expressing in you a likeness to Jesus Christ. He doesn't make you like Jesus Christ. He himself is like Jesus Christ in you because the old you is constantly in conflict with this. And this battle that takes place within us. I love the fact he calls it the fruit of the Spirit, not the flowers of the Spirit. <laughs> you say, what's the difference? Well, there's a difference. Flowers are decorative, aren't they? I mean, they're nice to look at. Improve the atmosphere. Most self-respecting churches I go to have flowers somewhere. I can't see any here. You know, it just makes the place look a bit nice. These aren't the flowers. This, This isn't to make Christians nice people. So it's lovely to live next door to a Christian because they don't play their music at 1 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) They don't have big parties in the backyard, you know, late into the night. And they are nice. They say, good morning. And they help you sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's nice having uh, Christians uh, working for you because, you know, they, they, they arrive on time and they don't leave early. <laughs> and what they say is what they mean. Nice having a boss who's a Christian because he treats you well. You know, this is all good, but this is not what being a Christian is about, just being a good person. These are not flowers. Christians are lovely people. This is fruit. What is fruit for? Fruit has an entirely different function. You don't say, this place is a bit drab here this morning. Let's hang up a banana. I mean, that doesn't help anything, does it? What's fruit for? Fruit is for consumption. Fruit is for eating. Fruit is for the hungry. 
And when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did you know there are people in Stovall who need to eat of your love? Who need to feed on your joy even? And be fed by your peace? And your patience? And our kindness and our self-control? Being Christ-like isn't floating around six inches above the ground, you know, every hair in place, and, and just bless you, my child. <laughs> being Christ-like. You know what being Christ-like is? I'll tell you, being Christ-like is being Christ-like. What was Christ like? He ate with the publicans and sinners. He crossed the road to talk to a dirty woman everybody else was embarrassed to be seen with. Lepers who came down the road ringing a bell saying, unclean, anybody come close? I've got this dreaded contagious disease. You ever notice that Jesus crossed the road? Touched them? Nobody ever touched a leper. Whenever Jesus healed a leper, he always touched him. Got into his life. You see... The fruit of the Spirit is only fruit when other people are benefiting from it and feeding on it. And the Holy Spirit places within us this appetite, this hunger to know Jesus Christ, and that this hunger to, to be like Jesus Christ. And the third thing the Holy Spirit does in your heart he creates a hunger to serve Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? It's in John 7, verse 37. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice on the last day of the feast that was taking place in Jerusalem, he stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, don't stay thirsty. Come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow out from within him. In other words, don't stay thirsty, come to me and drink. And what will happen is this, if you drink of me, there's going to be an overflow. It's going to flow out streams of living water. And then John adds an editorial comment on this. He says, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That is on the day of Pentecost. Up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here's the Holy Spirit's root. He comes route, I think we say here. I still speak English. I'm trying to be bilingual. Route. That's what we say, isn't it? Uh, the Holy Spirit's route is he is down and out. <laughs> You're thirsty. Don't stay thirsty. You don't need to stay thirsty. Come to me. Drink. Drink of myself. Take myself into your life. And you discover this. He's not going to stay there, settle down and be nice and cozy in your heart. He's going to flow out. He's going to flow out. He's going to flow out. A river is going to flow out. And that is means you're going to serve, not just in what we said about the fruit being for other people's benefit and consumption, but he breeds within us a servant's spirit. That's why the New Testament talks about spiritual gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And spiritual gifts, by definition, are the work of the Holy Spirit that are intended to benefit other people for the building up of other people, for the equipping of other people. The last word of Jesus before he ascended to his father in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. 
It says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, he ascended. Those were his last words. You receive the Holy Spirit, and you will be something. Be what? Be remote and detached with a halo on your head? No, you'll be witnesses. You'll be engaged with people. And at Pentecost, one of the things that happened to these disciples is ceased to be concerned with themselves. In the previous six weeks, which is when Jesus was crucified, they showed themselves to be utterly selfish. You remember that, don't you? By the time Jesus died, after six hours of hanging on the cross, every single one of them had fled. John was the last to go, but he left as well. Jesus died alone. Where were the disciples? They were hiding for fear of the Jews, the taunting of the people coming by, saying, hey, they've got your leader. Now we're going to get you next. We're going to get you next. Don't worry. You're going to be next. You're going to be next. And they'd gone. They'd showed themselves weak and feeble. Peter had promised he would never leave him, but of course he did. I'll never deny you. If I have to, if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. If I have to put four crosses on that hill, stick me on the fourth. Don't worry, Jesus. I'll be there. What nonsense. He was weak. This flesh is weak. Your spirit's willing. That's okay. You've got great ideas, but you don't have the capacity to live it through. But now after Pentecost, it becomes different. And they're no longer concerned with themselves. And of the 12 disciples, you know that Judas committed suicide the day Jesus was crucified. So there's 11 left. Of those 11 disciples, as far as our best understanding, not just from what is in Scripture, but reliable traditional history of those 11 remaining disciples, only one died in an old man in his bed, and that was John. All the others were martyred. They all died for their faith in Christ. Peter crucified upside down in Rome. Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, There's going to be a river that flows out. Yes, it's going to be costly, and it's going to be painful. And there's no growth that is comfortable, we heard earlier in that uh, interview about prayer. There's no growth that's comfortable. Growth is uncomfortable. The growth of an individual, the growth of the church is costly. And I suggest the three evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life are a hunger to know Jesus Christ, a hunger to be like Jesus Christ, and a hunger to serve Jesus Christ. Now, I deliberately use the word hunger because hunger means that I, I want this. It's 11 o'clock now. In about an hour's time, most of you will be hungry. Some of you watching online are sitting eating your breakfast right now, so you won't be hungry. <laughs> but... By one o'clock, you'll be even more hungry. And then you'll eat something and you'll be okay. But the very word hunger that I've chosen to use is that you're never satisfied. We never arrive. We never say, oh, am I like Jesus today? Oh, look in the mirror. Oh, my, I'm so Christ-like. You will see all the junk that makes up your life. It's other people who see Christ. That's why don't be too introspective. 
If I'm, in, I'm not an introspective person, fortunately, but when I do get that way, I get depressed. You wouldn't believe the mess and the things that go on inside my own heart, except that they probably do in yours as well. But as you say, Lord Jesus, in all this brokenness, this old nature of battling away in here, I want to trust the Holy Spirit to have his place in my life, and you'll be aware of the battle, other people be aware of the Lord Jesus. It's a hunger. Let me tell you a story to finish. I was talking to Barbara down here this morning. She's from Northern Ireland. And I want to tell you a story of something in Northern Ireland. Many years ago, I received invitations for the post. And the writer said, I'm a member of a certain church here in Northern Ireland. It's a large church, but he said it's a kind of, it's, it's a very kind of respectable church. And some of us, have a burden that there are many folks in the church who do not know Christ in any living way for themselves. And there's a group of us who have got together to pray for our church. And we've been to see our minister and we said to him, would he be interested in our having a mission in the church for the church people? Not an outreach, but a mission to the members of the church itself. And the pastor himself was not particularly spiritual or on the ball, and they told me this. And he said, well, well I don't, you know, why, why do we need to do that? Because we don't have a lot of evidence of real life here. We just have church attendance, which in Northern Ireland is not unusual. And it was a church of several hundred people. So this man, he was the principal of the local high school who wrote to me. He said, so our minister said, if you can find somebody, sure, we can think about it. Find somebody who's willing to come and speak and lead it. So he said, would you be interested in coming and spending time with us? So I said, well, I'm going to be in Northern Ireland in about 10 days' time. Can I come and meet you and let's talk about it? And so I met with him and shared the burden, the concern. And it really was that they never heard the gospel preached and that... You know, it was a kind of social church, really. So their idea was that we'd have a mission for two weeks. And we'd have meetings every night for two weeks. I think it was except Saturday night. And uh, all we're asking you to do, they said, is preach the gospel. <laughs> Make it clear. So I agreed to, and uh, sometime later I went for these two weeks. I was amazed at how packed the church was. Had a balcony around it. It was packed. Nobody brought a Bible. That's always an interesting sign. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you need to bring your Bible when you come to church to make sure what you're hearing is what's here. They're not messing with you. And uh, I started on Sunday morning. We are on Sunday night. Then we had every night down to Friday. And then next week, Sunday down to Friday. And then we had the final Sunday. We had one or two men's breakfasts and things like this as well in the course of those two weeks. They weren't inviting people from outside. It's just going to be for the congregation. And they kept the attendance pretty full all the time. Then that first week, 
There'd be no response that I was aware of at all. And I was really discouraged, really discouraged. And I remember at the weekend saying, Lord, how do I get through to these people? They know the language, they know the culture, they've been in it, most of them all their lives. How do we get through? And God laid on my heart, I say in retrospect, God laid on my heart, you never know at the time, is this my idea, what is this? This verse I read to you this morning, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And on Sunday, I said, I'm gonna ask you a question this morning. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit living in you? And I can't remember what the rest of my message was about that, but that morning, two people were born again of the Holy Spirit. I said, God, thank you, thank you, that I knew of that was. So that night, I preached on the same text. Did you receive that? And somebody else came to Christ. And I preached on the same text every night that week. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And I thought every day of things to say about what it means when the Holy Spirit lives within you. You know, in that second week, two of the elders of that church came to Christ. The youth leader came to Christ. Uh, I discovered there was a kind of hub of Freemasons in that church. And one of them came to Christ and called all of the Freemasons that were in the church together, including elders, you know, all kinds of people. And he told me this later. I said to him, listen, it's Christ or this. You can't do both. And the last night, at a high, it was an old church, you know, built probably 500 years ago, a big pulpit, an organ under the pulpit, and, you know, all the seats around. And uh, on the last hymn, on the last night, we were singing it. It was a response hymn, and the organist stops playing. The music just stopped. I looked down from the high pulpit, and he had his head in his hands, and he was sobbing. And he came to Christ. I met with the minister who was a bit cagey about me all the way through on the Monday morning at breakfast before I left. And he said, look, I came to Christ in a street meeting when I was a teenager. I loved Jesus with all my heart. I went off to study for the ministry. It was a Presbyterian church, study for the ministry in, uh, in, in Queen's University in Belfast, where the Presbyterian training school was. He said, they knocked all the life out of me. I came out of that with no confidence in scripture, no confidence in Christ. I came out basically a Christian social worker. I lost my message. And look at the deadness of my church. He said, I would never have said that until this morning. And he said, I'm asking the Spirit of God to make himself alive in me again. And he did. And that church went on to have a great witness in that community. You see, there may be some here this morning who have never received the Holy Spirit. You might say, like, these people, I didn't even know anything about this. You say, 
Lord Jesus, come by your Holy Spirit and live within me. But there may be some of us here this morning too who are doing what the scripture also warns us against. We are grieving the Holy Spirit, so he is there, but we are grieving him. And to grieve the Holy Spirit is to prevent him doing that for which he was given to us to do. We stop him doing his work. It tells us we can quench the Holy Spirit. That's like sticking a bucket of water over him and saying, shut up and slide down. We resist him in that way. As it does say, we can resist him. As that phrase, when Stephen was preaching, he said, you, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You just resist him and you grieve him and you quench him because we have an agenda that he interferes with and we don't want that. I ask you this morning, is the Holy Spirit alive and healthy in your heart? If he's not, and you've never received him this morning, you say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life by your Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who lives the life of Jesus in us. Please come to live your, in me. It involves repentance. I turn, I change my mind about myself and my sin and my own egotism, and I change my mind about God, and I embrace you and welcome you into my life. Just invite him to. But in a group like this, it's likely there are others, and your relationship with the Holy Spirit has been one of grieving and quenching and resisting. And I know that so well in my own life, how easily I can grieve him, quench him, and have to come back. But maybe for some of us, it's become a kind of disposition of life. I'm just living my own life my way. I'm a Christian. Christ is the patron of my Christianity, but he's not the life of it. He's not the content of it. There's no joy in Freshness. There's no river flowing out from within. As Jesus said there would be, if you come to me and drink, people are not feeding on the fruit of my life. There's nothing to feed. And I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, just a moment of prayer, should I say. And we've already heard this morning that we access God in prayer. We come right through to his throne, right through to his heart. We heard that in the interview before. But let's bow our heads. And I want to give you just a moment to speak from your heart to God about the role of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Just speak quietly. Whatever is on your heart, say to him, it's between you and him. You can confess things that are quenching his presence and grieving him. You can invite him for the first time to impart life and appetite. Jesus, Lord Jesus, I thank you for every man and woman 
every young person in this building tonight and those in their homes who are with us. I thank you that we're here because we do want to know you. But I pray, Lord Jesus, especially for those of us who may have never been born again of the Holy Spirit, never become alive. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as they open their hearts to you, that the Holy Spirit will bear witness with their spirits that they're children of God. You'll do something inside them that they know, they know something has happened. And for those of us, Lord Jesus, who have quenched and are grieving you, we pray we'll come humbly in repentance and confession and allow you the freedom to live that life in us, which is the life for which we were made, the life of joy and fruitfulness. Make this our life's experience, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>